Our Father, we thank you that the Holy Spirit has been given to us, your people, and he will carry on to completion the work that he's begun in us, to the honor of Christ, to the praise of our Father. Our Father, this warfare is long, and often we grow weary, but we pray that you will give us grace to endure to the end to that glorious return of Jesus Christ, or until we see him at our own death. We pray, our Father, tonight that you would encourage our hearts in the the word, especially the encouragement of this chapter in the confession. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I would invite you to open the outline that's in the bulletin to this chapter in the Westminster Confession on Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. If you don't have an announcement sheet, it's also in the back of the hymnal. And please open in God's word to Romans 14, where we read earlier, as well as 2 Timothy 2. Romans 14 and 2 Timothy 2. We've just completed the chapter on the law of God, and so now it's quite a natural move to move now to the subject of Christian liberty. On the balance, on the one hand, there's an obligation to obey God's moral law, but there's another balance There's the liberty and the conscience of each believer as we obey God's law. In our country, we really prize civil liberty. We pray that it'll continue. But there's even a greater freedom, and that's the freedom of the conscience of the believer before God. So whether the Christian is in our government or whether the Christian lives in a communist country, they still have and can enjoy this great privilege of the free conscience of the believer something that Christ has purchased for us, and it's very, very precious. It's a doctrine that's not widely appreciated, I think, in many evangelical circles and many evangelical churches. It's just assumed that the church has the right to make a list of man-made rules. Let's never forget this is a very precious doctrine. It was the first General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1560 that was writing the Book of uh, Church Discipline for the Presbyterian Church, And they had no pattern to go on, no church, um, anywhere in the world, not even from Geneva, without had such a book of church discipline. And so they wrote it conscientiously that every point of the Presbyterian church in the teaching and the discipline had to come from Scripture. In fact, they wrote that in the preface to the Scots Confession. They wrote, if any man will note in this, our confession, any article or sentence repugnant to God's holy word, that it would please him of his gentleness for Christian charity's sake to admonish us of the same in writing. And we, upon our honor and fidelity, do promise him satisfaction from the Holy Scriptures. Everything in the Presbyterian Church was established. It must come from the Scriptures. And the Westminster Confession is now taking on that same perspective and that same passion we come to this section tonight, we'll look at the freedoms of Christian liberty, section one, the giver of Christian liberty, the first part of section two, and third, the guide for Christian liberty, which is the remainder of section two. And then next time, Lord willing, we'll look at sections three and four. So first, the freedoms of Christian liberty, sections one. And as I read this, notice the freedoms from and as well as the freedoms to. The liberty which Christ purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, from the condemning wrath of God, and from the curse of the moral law. 
Furthermore, it consists in their being delivered from this present evil age, from bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, from the sting of death, from the victory of the grave, and from everlasting damnation. It consists also in their free access to God and in yielding obedience to him, not out of slavish fear, but out of a childlike love and willing mind. All of these were common to believers also under the law. Under the New Testament, however, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged. They are free from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected. They have greater boldness of access to the throne of grace, and they experience in greater measure the gifts of God's free spirit that believers under the law ordinarily partook of. Did you see all the things that believers have the freedom from? Freedom from the guilt of sin and the curse of the broken moral law. The guilt referring to the sentence that we're all sinners and we're all standing under the judgment of God. But in Christ, he has paid for all of our sin and so we're free now from all condemnation. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all of our sins, Titus 2.14. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. And so we're also free now from the wrath of God. He delivered us from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. To all those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and received him as their Lord and Savior, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And even the freedom from bondage to sin and the powers of darkness. Now you're looking the effect within us from the work of Jesus Christ. He has dealt with that sinful nature. You don't have to obey it anymore as a master you can obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin shall not be master over you, Romans 6.14. For now we've been freed from sin, enslaved to God. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. And you have been delivered from the evil one. You've been transferred out of his kingdom into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of God our Father, Galatians 1.4. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness, transferred you into the kingdom of his son, Colossians 1.13, so that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. That's the freedom that you have from the bondage to sin and from the powers of darkness. And ultimately, you have freedom from the sting of death and the grave, the evil of affliction. We still have afflictions, but it's not worked for evil. God has promised to work it for good. And death we experience, but the sting we don't. It's been removed. Death cannot even do harm for Christ's people because now death is the end of sorrow. Death is the door by which we enter into the very presence of Christ to be with him forever. Because we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in him, even though he dies, will live. And he will never die. John eleven twenty five. He who hears his word and believes him who sent him shall have eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but passed out of death into life. Freedom from. What a summary here of the benefits of the gospel to all those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's more. It's not only the freedom that you have from, but the freedom for certain privileges. You have greater access to God through the Son. Now there's no Old Testament system of mediators of the ceremonial law. It's Christ alone who is our prophet and high priest and king. We have boldness and confidence 
to have access through faith in him, Ephesians 3.12. So therefore, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. We do have that confidence to enter into the holy place. And this is the confidence if we have anything, ask anything according to his will, he hears us, 1 John 5.14. You have greater access to God through the Son. You have greater fellowship with God through the Spirit. Freedom for fellowship with God because there's a greater coming of the Holy Spirit as the coronation of Jesus Christ. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. Yes, the Holy Spirit was working, still had to draw people to saving faith in the Old Testament all the way through time. But now in the New Covenant, the giving of the Holy Spirit for God's people is so much greater that it even can be said that the Holy Spirit was not yet given before Jesus' glorification, John 7, 39, because the contrast is so great. In fact, the new covenant is called the ministration of the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3, 8. All this relates to the subject of the freedom that the believer has in their own conscience to obey the scriptures, because the Holy Spirit is indwelling each believer. The Holy Spirit has been given to give you both the willing and the doing of God's good pleasure. And so Romans 14, 4, the Lord is able to make him stand. There's no need for man-made rules to add on to the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. To make man-made rules on top of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit is to even bring doubt upon the power of the Holy Spirit. G.I. Williamson said, there's a pope in every man's heart. We think we can do better and control somebody else's growth in Christ and their timing and their schedule and where they should be at. And we can do a better job of making them holy than the Holy Spirit who indwells them. And you can look back through church history and you can see it again and again. The church has fallen into this error of thinking they can just add some more rules and we'll get the church further along in sanctification. Even during the time of the Puritans, some Puritans felt uncomfortable with Luther's freedom of the conscience. And so they started adapting codes. Out of fear of licentiousness, they adapted codes that forbid the theater and dance and cosmetics, and playing cards and religious art, musical instruments and worship, celebration of Christmas. 19th century, you'll see it again. Taboos were added in evangelicalism of wine and tobacco, which were both consumed by the reformers and the Puritans. Temperance movement wasn't moving fast enough, so many in the evangelical church, 1820s, 1830s, moved on to abstinence, to the objection of many Christian people. Charles Finney, a few decades later, added coffee and tea to the list. Never liked that fellow. <laughs> Worldliness is the excessive love of wealth. It's pride. It's looking where you're looking for your philosophy and thinking and opinions and values. But in the 19th century, it was a visible habits of behavior marking the non-evangelical off from the world, almost like kosher laws, which was what the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day. This whole list of kosher and laws, we're going to make them more holy, God's law isn't enough. Let's add more. It's contrary to the the beautiful doctrine that we believe that 
Each believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit who will give you both the willing and the doing of his good pleasure. You have the word of God. Tremendous freedom of Christian liberty, what you're freed from and what you have freedom for. Secondly, let's consider the source of Christian liberty. And here, the beginning of section two, God alone is Lord of the conscience. The source of Christian liberty is God himself and only God. He's the creator, so therefore he has the inherent right to impose obligations on us and compel us because we're the creature. God is our redeemer who has saved us and purchased us with the blood of Christ, has every right to tell us how to live because you've been purchased with the blood of Christ. God as lawgiver has every right to impose. These are the laws for his people. There is only one lawgiver, James 4.12, and judge, and he's able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? It's before him that every person stands or falls, Romans 14.4. See, there's only one lawgiver, and that's our God, and he has never given that right to any other human being to control man's conscience. You have Romans 14 open before you. Look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master or Lord that he stands or fall, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Both the weak Christian and the strong Christian are slaves to Christ, their master. And as slaves have no right to judge one another, one slave is not to judge the slave of a master. It's the Lord's concern whether he will stand or fall. It's the Lord's reputation at stake whether he stands or fall. Don't you think the Lord will take care of him? Don't you think the Lord will bring him on in sanctification? It's the Lord's reputation. Verse 9, what's the whole purpose of Christ's redemption? That he be Lord, Lord of his people. By the purchase of his death, he has purchased authority over us. And so we don't have the role of being judge of another person's conscience. Just as it would be absurd for a convict to go into a courtroom and go up and take the chair of the judge. That's the sense of verse 10. Who are you to judge your brother? Who's given you that right? Who's given you the prerogative of a judge? Isaiah 45, 22, I am God and there is no other. Before me, everyone shall bow. By me, every tongue will confess. Perhaps that's behind verses 12 and 13 of Romans 14. You will stand before the Lord alone. Not behind your parent, not behind someone else's conscience. You will give an account of your own conscience before God, according to his word. So stand back and think here. What's the connection then between sections one of the confession and section two? What's what's the connection between section one of all these freedoms that the Christian has in Christ to section two? Well, if the believer has been purchased, all these freedoms, because of your sanctification, because of your justification, your salvation, all these truths, these freedoms are yours. 
Come to section two. Why would you ever submit in bondage to somebody else's opinions and conscience and man-made rules? It's the language of the Apostle Paul, Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. John Calvin uh, taught that the subject of Christian liberty was extremely important. You just can't take it or leave it. In fact, he calls it, quote, an appendage to justification. And his treatment of Christian liberty follows on his treatment of justification. He writes in his institutes, quote, we must now discuss Christian freedom. He who proposes to summarize gospel teaching ought by no means to omit an explanation of this topic. For it is a thing of prime necessity, and apart from a knowledge of it, consciences dare undertake almost nothing without doubting. They hesitate and recoil from many things. They constantly waver and are afraid. But freedom is an especially an appendage of justification and is of no little avail in understanding its power. The freedoms of Christian liberty. What a list. The source of Christian liberty, God alone is Lord of the conscience. So it brings us to the third subject for tonight, the guide for Christian liberty, which is the rest of section two. And let me read that. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word, or which in matters of faith or worship are in addition to it. Therefore, anyone who believes such doctrines or obeys such commands out of conscience betrays true liberty of conscience. The requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience destroys both liberty of conscience and reason. The guide for Christian liberty, Scripture, is the only director of the conscience. The only one who has authority to bind anyone's conscience is God, and the rudder that guides our conscience is Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be proficiently, thoroughly equipped, furnished for every good work, everything you need to know to please God, to, to live the Christian life, to is either taught in Scripture or plainly deduced from Scripture and Scripture alone. The conscience of the believer is not autonomous. In our sinfulness, we, we would like it to be. No, the Christian is bound by and you're educated alone by Scripture. Westminster Confession would never say that the Christian is to live by their conscience. Would never say you're to live by your feelings would never say you're to live by your opinions. Our feelings, our opinions, our conscience will not always know what to do. Even in a believer, just going by your conscience, you may, you may be going the wrong direction. Here in Romans 14, there were believers by conscience that wouldn't allow them the freedoms of, of certain eating meats or drinking. Their conscience was condemning them, but they had freedom too. We must always mistrust our conscience and feelings and opinions and only be directed by Scripture. The guide for Christian liberty, Scripture is the only ultimate direction of the conscience. What does that mean? It means, one, that we're to never obey 
anything contrary to Scripture. This is almost rhetorical. We would, we would all say, of course, no human authority has, has absolute authority over your conscience. No parent, no teacher at school, husband, elder. Uh, no one can call you to disobey what is clearly a scriptural teaching. If an unbelieving spouse asked their believing spouse to lie on the IRS, the answer is clear. Can't do it. Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. We're never to obey anything contrary to God's word. The confession is emphasizing something different. The confession is saying, we're also never in the areas of faith and worship to obey anything in addition to scripture. Not only can no one or no church ever require us to believe anything contrary to scripture, there's even a greater freedom for the believer. In matters of faith and worship, no one can even ask us to do anything in addition to God's word. Luke twenty-two twenty-five, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. The apostles uh, disclaimed any having any power to be lawmakers over the believer's conscience. Second Corinthians one twenty four. Not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you're standing firm. Where the scriptures are silent, the Christian cannot be bound in conscience by another person's conscience or another person's opinions, another person's rules. This is why Ferguson said this is one of the most loved sections of all of the confession. It's certainly, that's my opinion too. But God alone is Lord of the conscience and he's left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. This, of course, can be traced to Luther, can't it? There he was in his defense at the Diet of Worms on April 18th, 1521. There he's standing before the nobles and the leaders of the church of the Holy Roman Empire, and he's called to recant his teachings on justification. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And Luther replied, unless I'm convinced by Holy Scripture or by evident or plain manifest reason, I cannot recant because my conscience is held captive to the word of God. Luther's saying, if you can show me from scripture where I'm wrong, I'll I'll willingly recant. Show me from scripture. Show me from scripture that salvation is not by faith alone in Christ alone, and, and I'll recant. Our conscience is not held captive by church councils or church tradition, but the word of God supremely. And Luther believed that if he was to act against conscience that was neither right or safe, he declared, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. And that was the bedrock of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, the written scriptures are alone, our final authority for faith and practice. No person, no institution stands in judgment over God's word. Our only ultimate authority is the Holy Spirit speaking in scripture. John Murray writes, the finality of scripture, if it has any meaning, demands that those who profess commitment to Christ and the church in its collective capacity direct all thought, activity, and obedience and objective by this word as the revelation to us of God's mind and will. 
Let me read it again. The finality of scripture, if it has any meaning, demands that those who profess commitment to Christ and the church in its collective capacity direct all thought, activity, and objective by this word as the revelation to us of God's mind and will. Sola Scriptura, the scriptures alone are God's final authority. So if that means that we are never in the areas of faith and worship to obey anything in addition to the scriptures, that means it's not the Bible plus the tradition of the church as equal authorities. Yes, we study church tradition. Yes, we value church tradition. We hold to the creeds. We hold to the confessions. We value teachers from other generations. We don't reinvent the wheel every generation. But the Bible alone is our authority and rule. That's why the believers in Berea were commended. They didn't even take the apostles' word for it, but measured the apostle Paul against Scripture. Acts 17.10, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Reformation came at a time when people were being told that the church in Rome claimed to be the only custodian and transmitter of apostolic tradition that made people dependent upon the church, and they had no way of verifying the truth. Reformation came along and translated the Bible into the language of the people. You measure everything by scripture, It's a charter freedom for the people of God, and the Bible was returned as the final and the supreme authority in the church. Hodge writes, so that nothing can be rightfully imposed on the consciences of men as truth or duty, which is not taught directly or by necessary implication in the Holy Scripture. We're never to, in areas of faith and worship, to obey anything in addition to Scripture, That means, too, that it's not the Bible plus rules that the church makes to keep us from sin. All forms of legalism were protected against that. You must be able to say to any church or any church authority that would impose legislation, please show me in Scripture where this comes from. Everything has to be based in Scripture. If it's true that in areas of faith and worship we are not to obey anything in addition to Scripture, that means it's not the Bible plus charismatic experiences. Well, the Lord has revealed to me this about you and what you must do. That's not of God. That's tyranny. We are to obey only Scripture. And when you open God's Word, which God the Holy Spirit wrote, and God the Holy Spirit's indwelling you, He's speaking to you twice. That's more than sufficient. This isn't new to our generation. This was even at the time of the Westminster Confession. Individuals claiming to have new revelations of the Spirit and trying to bind the actions and opinions. But you can't bind anybody apart from Scripture. Luther said, any teaching does not agree with Scripture is to be rejected. Even, quote, even if it snows miracles every day. What's that last saying, last sentence saying in this section? The requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience destroys both liberty of conscience and reason. What does that mean? Well, we obey the advice of a doctor because we trust that he or she knows more about disease than I do. 
So we give them a blind trust. Maybe not so much more because we can have YouTube and <laughs> looking up things. But you follow the advice of the furnace repairman because he's the expert. I don't know. You give him a blind trust. But that way of thinking must never, ever come into the church. If the church says, well, you're to believe this. This is the way you're to do things. This is the way you're to act. And the believer says, I don't know. They're the experts. (laughs) I'll just do what they say. If you think that and you follow that way of thinking, or if any church requires that, that's what the confession is saying. You are betraying at that moment the true liberty of conscience that Christ purchased for you in the gospel. And you are not to do it. If a church tells you how to live based on tradition or anything in addition to the Bible, the larger Catechism 105 calls it the sin of making men the lords of our faith and conscience, destroying the liberty that Christ purchased for the believer. It's that serious. So what's the implied challenge behind section two here of the confession? The implied challenge is if the scripture alone is to govern our conscience, then you better know what the Bible says. You better study it. You better know it. Know it well. Each believer is to examine and prove everything by the word of God. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. R.C. Sproul put it this way, it's important to master the law of God. One of the great benefits of mastering the law is to know not only what we're not allowed to do, but also where God has left us free so that we can discern the difference between the law of God and the rules of men. You have 2 Timothy 2.15 open before you. 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best, or as the New King James and the New American translated, be diligent. Moffat says, make every effort. It comes from the word, make speed. As the parent would say to the child, don't do your chores in a lazy way. Be diligent. It's talking about energy. It's not, it's not from the old King James study. Uh, that has a different meaning. It's not an academic, get out the commentaries and look up Greek words. That's not what it's saying. It's, it's talking about eagerness, effort. Put your all into this. And it's a commandment, imperative. The rest of your life. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker. And there's the word for blue collar. Those who toil physically and are exhausted in their body at the end of the day, who sweat, and it's the, it's the repetition of many of the tasks. Faithful plotting, line upon line, manual work, sweat at it, work at it, You will be a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 
It's a lifelong process. Be serious about the word, knowing the word. There's an old adage, half the bad theology in the world is due to suppressed perspiration. It's the result of not really making the effort, taking the time, and exercising the necessary discipline to try to grapple with what God is really saying in the pages of Scripture. Quote Ferguson, The Scriptures are sufficient to tell you believers how to make daily decisions, what's the right and wrong thing to do. Scriptures will give you wisdom. Scriptures will give the teaching And if you don't know the scriptures that well and how it relates to the question before you, ask older believers to show you in scriptures. But you don't fall back on questions like, well, what would Jesus do? You don't know what Jesus would do. You don't fall back on, well, do you have peaceful feelings about it? That's not really going to help you often. You may not feel peaceful to go and confess your sin of stealing and offer to make restitution. You may not feel good about that at all, but it's the right thing to do. Or the reverse. We can harden the conscience. So someone may say they have peace about marrying an unbeliever or divorcing their wife or many other sins. Unless evangelicals recover their confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture... Their claim that scripture alone is authoritative will remain empty. It will remain a charade. David Wells. The scriptures are sufficient. Christ is the Lord of your conscience alone. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. He will give you the willing and the doing of his good pleasure. Come to the scriptures. You'll find the wisdom that you need. And your conscience is free to justify everything according to God's word in prayer. C.S. Lewis gives Aslan's warning to Jill from the silver chair. First, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. This is why it's so important to know them by heart and to pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs. Believe the signs. Nothing else matters. And now, daughter of Eve, farewell. Christians' freedom of conscience under Scripture, guided by the Holy Spirit, is a precious doctrine purchased by Christ, and it's a doctrine which the church must defend. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for our salvation, why you would have chosen to set your love upon the likes of us. Our Father, we are humbled, and we are amazed at your grace and love to us. 
And we keep hearing more and more as we study the scriptures, it's not only the forgiveness of our sins. It's not only the righteousness of Christ that's credited to us. It's the adoptions of sons and daughters into your family. It's all the benefits that come and all these freedoms that we are freed from the wrath of God. We're freed from the power of sin. We're freed from the power of evil. We're freed even from the sting of death so that we might live lives of joy and freedom, never again entangled in bondage, especially by the man-made rules of men. Father, we pray that we might see the, the joy of this chapter, the joy of this doctrine of the, the freedom of the conscience of the believer. We thank you, our Father, that we have been given this tradition, that we have been given this confession. We are so grateful to be part of the wider Church of Christ through history. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.